Anime Japan, this is Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on our colorful episode, fluorescent polymers and graying hair. In addition, we're joined by Ms. Hannah Holmes, who will discuss the well-dressed ape. So, stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here on the Grok's Science Show. program i'm frank ling and i guess that makes me charles lee how you doing frank pretty good actually it's great weather making so-so progress in my project is it really that important to be making progress if i delay it more they may just continue paying me to do nothing <laughs> isn't that why you're still in academia <laughs> the ultimate goal right <laughs> it's a good thing the rest of the world doesn't know not yet <laughs> not until this broadcast goes out yeah but who really believes us right i don't think anyone actually listens to us so <laughs> safely anonymous So, Charles, have you thought about getting a tattoo? You know, I was thinking perhaps I should get a tattoo of a brain on my ass. (laughs) Or maybe I should just do the reverse, get a tattoo of an ass on my brain. Okay. So, have you thought about getting a fluorescent tattoo? Depends on the strobe effect I'm trying to achieve. So, it turns out bioengineers have actually been trying to put fluorescent polymers into the tissue culture since they want to see how certain processes occur when cells divide, for example, stem cells growing into uh, parts of the body or tissues or organs. Until now, they've been trying to use quantum dots and certain types of polymers, but the problem is that they're kind of toxic and they just linger around. So what some scientists have done is to devise a way so that these fluorescent agents would be biodegradable and so it safely go away from your system. They can put the tracer in, and then it'll just get flushed out. Yes, and the trick to doing that, apparently, is to plant an amino acid and citric acid into the polyper backbones of these fluorescent agents. And that helps it gets degraded by the body's natural machinery? Eventually, yeah. It, I mean, it takes a few months, at least when they did this in mice, but goes away. Do they want to try and use this in humans? I could think of actual applications where maybe they have a surgery and they want to see if the tissue is healing nicely and there's some way to to shine a light to see uh, how things are going. (laughs) All you need is a flashlight. Uh, Well, a UV flashlight anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Don't let it burn your skin. Do they actually want to use this to make tattoos? They were thinking about drug delivery and bioengineering and all that fun stuff, so... (laughs) All these pedestrian applications, don't they know the real money's in tattoos? (laughs) Yeah, Vegas, man. (laughs) So anyways, this is actually from our very favorite journal, actually. (laughs) You know, this journal has so much great stuff, I don't know why all the other journals just don't quit and go out of business. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there should be only one, right? There can be only one. (laughs) So this was a work carried out by uh, Jen Yang at the University of Texas, and it's in our journal, The Proceedings of the National Academies of Sciences. PNAS. All right, Frank, you know, I think I can think of another application for those fluorescent tracers. Your eyes? Pretty cool eyes, I think. <laughs> a little demonic, though. Besides, don't, don't they say that the first thing a girl notices about you is your eyes? They'd certainly notice you with fluorescent eyes, I think. 
My eyes are pretty bad. I don't really make the eye contact in the first place. I think this way you can't help. But in fact, this has to do with your hair. Well, not exactly bright these days. <laughs> well, is it prematurely graying? I think it's just maturely graying. Oh. Uh, researchers now are starting to zero in on what can cause hairs to go gray. Okay, I thought it was because follicles get dirty or unstimulated from lack of blood and so that doesn't produce melanin. Right, so apparently there are these stem cells that are the hair follicle which wind up dividing and then producing melanocytes that actually mm -hmm. color the hair. Mm -hmm. And now a group of researchers over in your neck of the woods at the uh, Tokyo Medical and Dental University in Japan, led by Emi Nishimura, have discovered that there's a process linked to these uh, melanocyte stem cells, which continually renew themselves, but then over time, these cells stop dividing, and then that's when the hair becomes gray. Okay, well, I take ginseng. Good for your whole body. Uh, it's almost certainly true that x-rays or chemotherapy drugs aren't very good for these melanocytes, according to these researchers. Uh, the thing is that's kind of fascinating is that uh, the same sort of changes they see when they use this experimental manipulation is the exact same uh, naturally graying mice have in terms of their cells. So it suggests that the mechanism of how these cells are dying is pretty much the same. The particular cells that produce it stop dividing and stop being able to produce. It's, this just occurs over time, they think, because of accumulated damage to the cell itself. Huh, okay. So they, they think essentially that this is sort of a natural mechanism for the cell to stop dividing when it's accumulated too much genetic damage. Okay. So they think maybe more of a protective mechanism, whereas you might think of graying as kind of a bad thing. In fact, it may just be the cell's natural ability to kind of shut down when there's too much genetic damage to it that it can't continue to function anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So do they think that this could uh, provide insights into stem cells elsewhere in the body? Oh, okay. Can we get this in our skin cream one of these days? <laughs> well, yeah, maybe get some melanocytes and just rub it into your hair. And uh, <laughs> Anyway, very interesting work. This was work published in a recent edition of the journal Cell. Oh, my other favorite journal. <laughs> You have so many favorite journals, Frank. It's amazing. You gotta see my bathroom. I just have a bunch of magazines. I don't think I want to see all the magazines that are in your bathroom. <laughs> and that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Ms. Hannah Holmes will join us to discuss the well-dressed ape. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the Grox Science Show. Well, humans often tend to set themselves apart from other members of the animal kingdom, but perhaps that is because most may never have really given themselves a proper appraisal. Well, just exactly how do humans compare to other animals? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Ms. Hannah Holmes. Ms. Holmes is the noted science writer whose previous books, The Secret Life of Dust and Suburban Safari, have received much acclaim. Her most recent work, The Well-Dressed Ape, A Natural History of Myself, explores the world of Homo sapiens for a general audience. Ms. Holmes, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Great to be here. Uh, well, certainly our pleasure, and I think this is really a very fascinating book, The Well-Dressed Ape. Curious if you maybe tell us a little bit about your investigations into the human species. Well, the human really got shortchanged by biologists. Biologists, when they find a new animal, they run it through this meat grinder, and pump out a link of sausages, like describing the animal's physical appearance, what color fur, how many legs, how many teeth, its diet, does it eat only pine cones, or does it eat red snapper grilled with a light aioli, so on. 
And human has somehow escaped this treatment. And that seemed a terrible shame to me, both for the other animals and for ourselves. So I pushed myself through the sausage maker just for the fun of seeing what would come out. So really, there's no such thing as a biological fact sheet for humans out there. People have done lighthearted, quickie jobs, but no one has really sat down and analyzed this animal to look at how it compares to its close relatives, not to mention the entire mammalian family in the animal kingdom. Hmm. Uh, well, the book is certainly fascinating. It seems like it's a mix of biological facts, um, some personal anecdotes, and then extrapolation of that to humans uh, in general. I, I'm curious, maybe you can talk about maybe some of the more surprising findings that you found. There were so many. It was like surprise of the day um, working on this book. Some of the bigger ones, though, one of my lifelong frustrations has been with the humans' earth-wrecking tendencies. And when I really sat down and thought about it, what I realized is that every animal has a biological destiny to be an earth-wrecker because the mandate for any living thing is to control enough resources that you can reproduce successfully. I mean, that's how you win the game. So every animal must control resources and alter its environment to its own benefit. So I started thinking about beavers. They're like mass murderers of the forest. They build dams and they drown everybody that lives within that acre or two of forest. They don't care about drowning chipmunks and spiders and and ants. They just do what they gotta do. And rabbits, I swear, if you gave rabbits guns, they'd shoot everybody and take their lettuce. So it really was kind of enlightening to me that humans are earth wreckers, but so is everybody else. We just have the tool benefit, and that allows us to do it at an accelerated rate. On the other hand, another of the great awakenings that I had doing this book is that while the beaver doesn't give a rat's behind about flooding acres of wildlife, the human actually does have the capacity to regret its actions and even to sort of backpedal and try to make amends for the things that we have done. So humans at this stage in our culture do try not to kill the last sea otter, try not to eat the last codfish, and that is unique behavior. We have the ability to reflect on our behavior, and beyond that we have the ability to reflect on the morality of our own behavior. And that is really quite something in the animal kingdom. So the book is actually divided into a number of the different traits here. And uh, you start off with physical description of the animal, the brain, etc. I'm curious, which of these particular aspects of human biology did you find most fascinating? All of them. (laughs) (laughs) It's such a fun animal, because in so many ways, it's just a dead on primate. It's just a primate's primate social creature, has a strong social drive, has the ability to get along with others. Unlike, say, a tiger, which is a very solitary animal, nobody better come into a female tiger's territory unless it's time to mate, and then you better make it quick and be gone. The human is a social animal, like the crow or the wolf or the dolphin. So that makes a fairly unusual animal in a lot of its behavior. Of course, at heart, it's still a very selfish animal because every animal's goal, again, is to reproduce. And anything that gets in the way of my reproductive drive, I'm going to interpret as a threat to my future. And, of course, when I talk about that in personal terms, it doesn't mean that I'm actually going to go have as many kids as I can. In a strange way, the human is like a domesticated animal 
in that it retains these ancient instincts and drives and urges to control resources in order to reproduce, but doesn't actually need them, and it doesn't actually use them. So humans can wind up with a ton of resources, a great big house and eight cars, and no offspring, which looks quite silly. It looks like the cat who eats pint of fancy feast for breakfast and then goes out and kills a robin that it can't possibly eat. I mean, it's really fascinating. I'm curious, where do you think humans excel compared to other animals? Well, obviously the brain has taken a few giant leaps. So we have a much more complicated brain, and it's capable of feats that no creature will ever manage in the foreseeable future. We can plan and project and predict. We use the past, our extraordinary strength of memory, to alter our path into the future. So the brain permits very different approach to life than you'll see in any other animal, which in every other animal is day-to-day. And if the animal acts in a way that suggests long-term thinking, that is generally just sheer instinct. Squirrels don't bury acorns because they know it's going to get cold and the acorns will be gone. They do it because there's a little cell in their brain that goes, tick, bury an acorn, and they do it. They don't think about it. They don't know why they do it. So the human is unique in that way. The human is also unique in the extraordinary toolkit that we produce. Even in the Stone Age, the toolkit of the human was really extensive. There were very specialized tools for a whole bunch of jobs. And since then, we've diversified so that we have tools that we can slice open our own brains with and take out the little tumor pieces that might be in there and then more tools we can use to sew back up the head and more tools that we can put on the wound to keep it from getting infected and additional tools that we can swallow to prevent an infection. The number of tools that the human uses in a day is mind-boggling. Well, certainly our brains have set us apart from the other animals, yet many of the uh, sensory capabilities that we ourselves have lack in comparison with other animals. Yeah, obviously there was a trade-off at some point because our weapons are pretty pathetic as well. We basically have none. I mean, if you look at your fingernails, that's supposed to save your life. Chimpanzees do a lot of biting and kicking. Humans have almost lost our canine teeth, so the biting isn't going to work for much. And the same goes for some of our other senses. We can't smell our way out of a wet paper bag. Our hearing is not bad. Our vision is middling. But again, we have this astonishing organ up there behind all the senses on our face, and it can make a huge amount of profit from a small amount of sensory data. We can compensate for billion and one shortcomings, and in this day and age, we can compensate for things like dreadful eyesight. We can make little pieces of plastic that go in front of the eyes, and voila, there's a perfectly functioning human. We can compensate for terrible hearing by implanting things in the ear or getting to the point where we will be able to compensate for lack of vision. Um, Again, our tool use, when you look at it from a perspective of having only a stone-based toolkit 15,000 years ago, we've done quite an amazing job as an animal. So would you say that tool use is perhaps something that sets us apart as uniquely human? Well, I mean, technically there are a few other animals that use tools, and that club is growing there are crows, a bunch of primates, and dolphins now have been shown to use tools and to teach others to use tools. But the toolkit of any one of these animals is going to be maybe one, two, you know, maybe at most three different 
types of tool, a probing tool and a smashing tool, perhaps. And the human, again, can, uh, cannot possibly count the number of tools that you access in a single day, starting with a pen, a piece of paper, a stapler, a computer with 10 zillion pieces inside of it, each one an individual tool. It's absolutely stunning. Well, certainly one of the other features of humans that seem to make us relatively unique is that our adaptability to a wide range of environmental conditions. That's right, and, and that, of course, is partly related to the brain. We find in other animals as well that animals who live in unpredictable ecosystems, places where the food supply is really shifting around physically or seasonally, places where it's hard to make a steady living, the animals in those areas tend to have bigger brains. And that gives us some insight into our own species. The huge brain allows us to improvise when we come up against problem in our environment. So as the human left the sort of predictable and well-heated region of our initial evolution in Africa, we were able to improvise responses to snow. Oh, my Lord, that was a major one, not to mention dryness and a completely different set of animals, a completely different set of building materials. Humans have that behavioral flexibility to adapt that a chimpanzee just doesn't have. The poor chimp is limited to a little spot of forest in Central Africa, and when it's gone, the chimp's run in this world is over. They don't have the behavioral flexibility that the human has to, instead of sleeping up in the tree canopy at night, digging shelters underground and putting rocks at the front to keep the lions from eating them. They lack that ability to envision a solution to a problem. Do humans really have any natural predators? Well, they've gotten really, really small, haven't they? <laughs> um, we used to have big ones. On this continent, we more or less shot them all when lead became cheap. Back when humans were still making their weapons out of bits of stone and bone, it took a long time to make a deadly weapon, and so people didn't waste them so quickly on large animals. But once the Europeans came along with the cheap lead, we really just blasted all our predators out of our way, and that has happened over much of the planet. What we see now is that the really bad guys are the really tiny ones, and they are actually a lot more difficult to eradicate than lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my, Ebola is not nearly so easy to dispatch as a grizzly bear. This new landscape, actually, it's not a new landscape of predators. These little creatures have always preyed on humans, just as, as lice have. But uh, we're living in enormous groups now, and so diseases spread more quickly. These predators can hop from one prey animal. If you want to see the human in that context, the um, predator can hop very quickly from one prey animal to the next in these big, dense populations. So the itsy-bitsy predators are having a field day with the humans, and the itsy-bitsy predators have such a tiny lifespan that they evolve very, very quickly, much more quickly than the humans can. So they're giving us a run for our big brain. And they might be the ones left uh, at the end of it all. <laughs> <laughs> they certainly are pushing um, our limitations. It's an interesting contest, these itty-bitty things. And our tools only really managed to locate them for us in very recent history. And our additional tools of genetics and DNA and biochemistry are only just allowing us to figure out how to begin to slow these things down.
Certainly another trait that humans possess that arguably relatively unique to humans is uh, our ability to communicate with one another. Yeah, although, again, as our tools improve, we're finding out that perhaps some other species have been gossiping about us for a long, long time in nice, well-formed sentences. The most interesting one to me is the prairie dog, which looks like just any other dumb little rodent. But when scholars tape-recorded what they were saying and then broke it down into the itty-bitty units of sound, what they found was that these animals are using what appear to be units of language, and they can move those around as necessary to create new meaning. That's only the latest. We knew for some time that various primates can do a fair job of using rudimentary language. We know that whales and dolphins are using something sufficiently complex that we can't quite figure it out. So there are hints increasingly that our ability to shift bits of symbol around in order to convey new information is not all that unique. And that's kind of interesting. You mentioned earlier, uh, you know, the ecosystem impacts that humans have. How well are we uh, adapting with uh, the other animals on the planet? This brings us into the realm where biology crashes into culture. We do have these biological impulses to control uh, resources and maximize our power, if you will, over our ecosystem. As humans become more secure in their day-to-day existence and it becomes clear that they don't need to eat every single thing they see, they tend to develop this awareness um, of the ecosystem as something with an inherent value of its own. This is sort of a luxury recognition because in poorer places, humans simply can't afford to worry about other species. But as human cultures do gain a bit of a cushion of security, they do reliably develop a concern for the entire system in which they live. And that's, again, that's really unique. The killer whales of the Pacific Northwest recently went through the stellar sea lion population, like flock of seagulls going through the shrimp. And then when they were out of stellar sea lions, they ate up a whole bunch of harbor seals. And then those started to run out. The next thing on the menu was the sea otter, and they started plowing through those. The thing that I find fascinating about this is I am dead certain that this orca does not lie awake at night feeling terrible about what it's doing to the sea otter. The orca could not give a hoot. Well, it's our unique sense of morality then. Well, we're running slightly out of time, but uh, I wonder if you have some final words regarding the human animal. Well, I think another of its most fascinating features is its mating behavior. And this, again, ties into everyone's future. We are all programmed, all animals and plants, to reproduce. And yet the human animal, increasingly, is opting consciously not to do so. That's contrary to every biological rule. And it's patently bizarre on the face of it. And yet it's probably the only real and guaranteed solution to the problem that we've got ourselves into, where there are so many of us, each wanting so much, that we're running the planet into the poorhouse. And perhaps it is a biological response to habitat limitation. Whatever it is, it's extremely odd, and this human animal is now voluntarily limiting its population, perhaps in part for the good of the rest of the plant and animal kingdom. 
the new book is called The Well-Dressed Ape, A Natural History of Myself. Uh, Ms. Holmes, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. That's been great. And you're just listening to Ms. Hannah Holmes discussing the well-dressed ape. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So, stay tuned. Ready to play the game? It is called the Grokatron 5000, our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic well-dressed or has no clothes. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they're well-dressed or they have no clothes and maybe a little reason why. Uh, Ms. Holmes, ready to play the game? Ready as I'm ever going to be. Okay, and that's all we can ask. Person number one, well-dressed or has no clothes, it's real estate mogul Donald Trump. <laughs> Well, I'm going to have to say well-dressed. The animal has, has accrued a vast array of resources and could reproduce apparently indefinitely. There appear to be an endless supply of females who think that he's a real good bet for their own DNA. Uh, all right. Well, number two is Microsoft uh, former CEO Bill Gates. Again, very well-dressed, far better dressed than uh, Trump in some ways and in other ways exposing a little human weakness. I mean, the, he's obviously prepared to provide for any number of offspring. On the other hand, he has a strong social side, which is tremendous in terms of winning the support of your own community when you need help. So that's very, very adaptive behavior. It's a toss-up as to which strategy is best in the long run. Mm. All right. Number three is the famed uh, evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins. <laughs> so well-dressed. Um, yeah, I don't know about his reproductive status, but the guy has exploited his gorgeous brain to the point that I'm sure he could support any number of offspring, is playing to cultural evolution of our species, which is sort of the way the human evolves these days. We don't evolve so much based on genetic mutations so much as we do on knowledge, and he's contributing heavily to the future of the species with his knowledge. Indeed, indeed. Uh, number four is quarterback Brett Favre. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, b common thread here is that these people are all well-known. That automatically means that in terms of reproduction, they're <laughs> doing fine. You know, again, he can probably have his choice of any number of carriers for his offspring. Perhaps not the guy with the greatest ability to make a quick decision in an emergency, so some of his children might be eaten by lions, but <laughs> he's, he's doing all right. All right, and finally, number five, it's the new president of the United States, Barack Obama. Wow, like um, how well-dressed can you get? I mean, <laughs> how good-looking is Barack Obama? <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Ms. Holmes, I do want to thank you very much for sticking around playing the game, the Grokatron 5000. And, of course, talking about your book, which, again, is The Well-Dressed Ape, A Natural History of Myself. Uh, Ms. Holmes, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, thank you. 
All right, and now it's time for this week's World Famous Question of the Week. And joining us this week is our Austrian buddy, Bruno. Yeah, hello, this is Bruno, and I'm very happy to be here with you. It's so very fun, yeah. They use the bleach, you know. You know what the bleach is. It's the sodium hypochlorite. All right, yeah, maybe uh, you should get some highlights. Sexy times. All right, thanks a lot, Bruno. Yeah, yeah. And that's all for this week's edition of the Croc Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Grok Science, you can email us at science at grox.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.